0: Revelation 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. You know, a lot has changed in how we do business and conduct commerce. We used to go to department stores. Now we go to Amazon. Right? See, there they are. We used to ride the escalators. Now we just scroll. We used to play hide and seek in the rounders, my brother and my dad and myself. (laughs) Now we hide behind a false sense of user anonymity. We used to pay cash. Remember that? Remember cash? We wrote checks. Uh, We would swipe cards. That was a new thing. Well, now all we have to do is type in a three digit code. Things have changed. Twenty years ago I would have said Revelation eighteen is like a trip to the Mall of Babylon. Now it's Babylon.com. Now I, I gotta tell you because this is just it's just what I do. I was thinking about this. Babylon.com. That's what it would be today. So I typed in Babylon.com. I just wanted to see what would happen. My computer exploded. No, no. <laughs> there is a Babylon.com. There is a company called Babylon. And here's what it says in the About Us link on Babylon.com. Our visibility comes from our ability to optimize for growth and profit. Babylon is running three divisions. Investment. We are looking to invest in ambitious companies in every field. We have the financial resources and we are waiting for the next big thing to invest in. Monetization, that's their second thing. We are monetizing desktop apps since 2007 for billions of downloads, providing providers and app developers using our intelligence systems with top advertisers and monetization solutions, offering the ability to monetize and promote their applications or content. Third aspect, translation. Babylon.com Translation We're offering translations in 77 languages Dictionary definitions And Wikipedia results in 25 languages Our software is sold worldwide And is used in over 168 countries And has a growing user base Of over 90 million desktop installations So so investment Monetization Translation These are the three areas That Babylon.com is focused on Now I thought that, curious enough, but add in the fact that Babylon.com was founded in 1997 and traded on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. It's an Israeli company. I thought, how interesting that even some in Israel are going back to Babylon. Why someone of Jewish descent would have anything to do with Babylon, and yet when the exiles came back from Babylon... Well, many of them just stayed. Many of the Jewish people who were taken into captivity just stayed because Babylon became home. And yet there were others. Like the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So much has changed in how we do business and how we conduct commerce. One thing has not changed, and we see this even as we come to the very last hour in Revelation 18, and the one thing that has not changed is greed, It's materialism, acquisition, and the hunger for more. Matthew 16.26, Jesus said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Revelation 17 and 18 come together. They come as a pair. They are in sequence. That is Revelation 17, I believe, happens before Revelation 18. And in chapter 17, we saw the crushing of religious Babylon, which is that amalgam of all false, external, superficial religion. That one world religion at at the end of the age, in the final seven years that we see, ultimately crushed by those who attend, those who are involved with it, they're done with it, they're through with it, they crush it. Revelation 18 is sacked 5th Avenue. The fall of commercial Babylon. Commercial Babylon is not the religious center, no, it is the center of power and politics and profit in the brief kingdom of the Antichrist. And so we see this beginning to play out in chapter 18, even as the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. We're talking about truly a city that is burning down. A city that is being destroyed and the merchants of that city are terrified, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, "'Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. An entire city destroyed in a single hour.'" Is that a literal hour? Well, it's repeated two more times in the chapter. If you look down at verse 17, For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Doesn't take long. Down in verse 19. At the end of the verse. In one hour she has been laid waste. Now understand this in context. John's writing in the first century. The apostle John who received the revelation on the island of Patmos. He's writing all this down. He's writing it down at a time though when the felling of a city would happen by battle or by siege, and this would never go quickly. This would never happen in a single hour. Even a day would be impossible, unthinkable. Of course, John never saw the nuclear blast at Hiroshima. He didn't witness the fallout of Nagasaki. He didn't see the the World Trade Centers come down on 9-11 in the space of an hour. By the way, side note, you know when the Twin Towers were built there was a, an editorial that was published in the New York Times and the editorial stated quote, these towers will either be monuments to man's ingenuity or the world's biggest tombstones. John hadn't seen any of these things. He hadn't seen a city fall in an hour. He probably however knew of a city that had. Maybe you do too. That city went by the name of Babylon. Babylon fell. Turn back in your Bibles, if you will. Keep a finger there in Revelation 18. Go back to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. It's 539 B.C. And at that time and in that year, and we know the date because of historians like Herodotus, who wrote within 50 years of this occurrence, 539 B.C., it was October of the year, and outside the massive city walls of Babylon, the armies, the combined armies of the Medes and the Persians, were laying siege to the city. But they couldn't get in. The walls of Babylon were huge. It was said that six chariots could ride side by side along the top of the walls of Babylon. It was an impenetrable city. And so on the inside, while the people were under siege, they weren't too concerned. They could last months with the city stores in Babylon. No worry whatsoever. Well, Daniel chapter 5 verse 1 tells us, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Belshazzar was a co-regent of Babylon. His father was named Nabonidus. Nabonidus was really not a stay-at-home king. He was more go-off-and-fight-foreign-wars kind of a king. So he was gone. He's out of the area. And Belshazzar, this buffoon, is home watching the farm and not doing a very good job. Verse 2 tells us, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, literally his his great-grandfather, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought out the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Why in the world would Belshazzar be partying at a time like this? Well, as I said, the city was impenetrable, or so they thought, and he was inebriated. Maybe that's why Proverbs 31 says it's not for kings to drink wine. (laughs) It's not for them to get drunk and forget themselves. Well, he had. And in verse 5, suddenly, I just love this story. The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. (laughs) Well, yeah. And his thoughts alarmed him, no doubt. And his hip joints went slack, which I've pointed out to you in the past, theologically, is a way of saying he wet himself. And his knees began to knock together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read the inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. A third ruler because Belshazzar was second and his father was Nabonidus was first. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. And King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles, and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you, or your face be pale, and please change your shorts. I'm sorry, no, she didn't say that. (laughs) It's my own interpretation. <laughs> there is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the mag- magicians and conjurers and Chaldeans and diviners. And this was because an extraordinary spirit. Knowledge and insight, interpretation and dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king had named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. Skip down to verse 23. Daniel is now speaking with this buffoonish king and he says, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you and your, you and your concubines and your wives and your nobles have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see, hear or understand but the God in whose hands is your life breath or are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. He's bold. Daniel is probably 85 years old at this point. And he says, Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription, verse 24, was written on it. This is the inscription that was written out. Mine, mine, tekel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Now Daniel's sharing. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now understand this. Mene is a form of the word mina. A mina was uh, 50 shekels. And so it was used euphemistically to say to number. You have been numbered. You've been numbered like a weight of 50 shekels. You've been numbered against this weight. Tekel, the next word, literally comes from the word shekel. It's connected to, or shekel comes from tekel, and a shekel would be one fiftieth of a mina. And the shekel was the standard weight. So how you would weight the value of something in the marketplace, in commerce, you would weigh it against the value of the shekel. And he says, so you have been numbered, mina, mina, 50 shekels, you have been weighed, tekel, from shekel, and you have been found wanting. And then ufarson." The singular for Ufarsin, which is why you'll see it in just a moment, or you see it uh, two different ways. You see it written as Ufarsin in verse 25 and Perez in verse 28. Perez is the singular form of Ufarsin. So it's the same word, it's just one is written in the singular. And there's a reason for it, by the way. But Ufarsin in the singular, Perez, was a half shekel. So you take the shekel and you divide it. And so that's why it is you have been numbered, you have been weighed and found wanting, and so your kingdom will be divided. And that's how that wordplay is taking place. And so Belshazzar was weighed, and he wasn't even worth 150th of the value of the kingdom over which he had been given rule and authority. So Babylon would be divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. But why use these two different words? Again, it's the same word, it's just one is in the singular, but what's going on here is Daniel, while he's following the Lord's suit, the Lord is giving a word play. That is, Ufarsin sounds an awful lot like Farsi, which is the Persian language. And it was the Persians right outside the city walls. Perez in the Hebrew is Paras, which is the same word as Persia. So the Persians are out there, those speaking Persian are out there, you have been numbered, weighed, and found wanting, your kingdom will be divided. And in verse 29, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as a third in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Interesting. So Herodotus tells us this way. The history that was written, extra biblical history, but this is legit. On this October night, with the city under siege, as we read, Belshazzar and his nobles feasted inside. And while that was taking place, a brilliant uh, general on the outside, by the name of Cyrus, he diverted the Euphrates River. This was brilliant. He diverted the river itself into a basin six miles north of Babylon. The water level in the Euphrates dropped to ankle deep and the men entered the city through the channels running underneath the walls, the canals that allowed water into Babylon. They just walked right in. They walked in. They got to the city center before the guards even knew what was happening. They took down the city in one hour. So what happened before... And John is declaring it will happen again. With the same expediency of ancient Babylon's demise, Antichrist Babylon will fall in one hour. Back in Revelation 18, verse 11. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Interesting, when religious Babylon was crushed, in chapter 17, how the people respond? Do you remember? They party. They feast. It's joyful. The kings and the leaders and the users of false religion, as I said, they exploit it until they have no more use for it, and then they turn on it, they strip her down, feast on her flesh, and burn her to a crisp. Mystery Babylon. That's chapter 17, verse 16. There's no love lost between those who would use religion and then be done with religion. They could really care less. And so they celebrate when this religion falls. We no longer have any moral authority over us, any religion over us, and so the world doesn't care for the world's own religious system. But as commercial Babylon burns, there's a great sorrow. There is a worldwide global sorrow, and we see it throughout the chapter. In verse 9, it tells us that the kings of earth weep and lament. In verse 10, it says they say, Whoa, woe!" In verse 11, the merchants of earth weep and mourn. In verse 15, they're still weeping and mourning, still saying, Whoa, whoa! In verse 16. In verse 18, shipmasters, passengers, sailors, they're all crying out. In verse 19, they throw dust on their heads. They're still crying out. They are weeping and mourning and saying, Whoa, woe!" And the picture here is of a devastated people deeply mourning an overwhelming loss. And the sorrow is not loss over a beautiful city. It's not mourning over the lives that are lost within Babylon. It's not tears over even a power decimated. They're saying, woe is me. Woe is me. They are mourning their own financial ruin at a time where the global economy has just crashed. With the downfall of the city, the global economy is done for. And that is what's behind the weeping. You know, it's interesting. This is in tribulation. This is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And their greatest sense of mourning and weeping is over the loss of cash. Which tells you something about the heart of humanity. No one's going to care about the environment on that particular day. No one's going to be worried about the rainforest or the resident orcas. Their torment, their sorrow, their mourning is over the loss of their financial strength. The burning of Babylon is a brutal blow to buyers, sellers, investors, and speculators, those whose futures now have no hope. Who have everything tied up in the false security of the global market. Now, if you're an investor, if you're a businessman or woman, if you have financial capital, if you know how to use that and you're involved in that, this is not a judgment about a job or a position. But hear me clearly, this is a judgment about the condition of the heart. And it's a serious judgment. My friends, the Word of God is clear. It is all coming to an end. And then what? And then what? Everything that you've saved up, everything invested, everything stored up, everything put into business, all the growth, all the wealth that we have experienced in this country especially, but across the history of the world, will come to an end. And then what? Then what's it really worth? Will we be like Belshazzar, weighed and found wanting? Job 27 verse 8 says, What is the hope of the godless when he is cut off? When God requires his life. Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Psalm forty nine, verse seven No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. And I remind you again of what Jesus said, in Matthew sixteen, twenty six, Mark eight, thirty seven. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, before it's all gone, before Babylon 5th Avenue gets sacked, let's just take a moment and and see what we're really dealing with. I want to scroll through the stores of this massive global commerce, and you see them listed right before us. We can begin in verse 12 with the fine jewelry page. So go ahead and scroll to fine jewelry. Cargoes, verse 12, of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. These are part of the things that will go down, but this is part of the commerce of Babylon. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls. Compare that to what God's economy provides. Proverbs 8, verse 10 says, "...take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold." For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her, with wisdom. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Now, Peter's writing to wives, and he's giving some of the best advice in history on how a wife can win her husband for the Lord. But there's application, I think, that could even go beyond that. He says to these wives, your adornment must not be merely external. Braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. God looks at ladies, God looks at a woman and says, I love a quiet spirit. I love a, a gentle woman. This is pre- more precious to God than precious stones or jewels would ever be. And that kind of adornment has eternal value. The adornment that we tend to put on in the mornings has very little value. How do you know? Because we keep buying more adornment. (laughs) Last year's adornment is so last year. But God's adornment is eternal. Well, let's scroll on. Let's go to the Prime Wardrobe link. Cargos of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen, purple and silk, And scarlet. And we're talking about some spendy rags here. Scarlet and purple. These colors, I I think we shared when we were studying Thyatira, that the process of extracting a single drop of purple dye out of a shellfish was highly expensive in John's day. So to have an entire outfit that was dyed purple would be a very spendy proposition. You wouldn't be getting this at the, you know... The, the uh, half-off rack at the back of American Eagle. This would be like a, the prime rack in Nordstrom. This is the, the expensive stuff. But again, God has such a better perspective. Jesus does. He says in Matthew 6.28, Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you? You of little faith? And in that context, Jesus says Matthew 6.33, which I think is a great life verse for anybody, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you will seek the kingdom, if you'll look to Jesus, if you'll make your life and your marriage and your business and your relationships about Jesus Christ, I'll take care of the rest. I got it. You don't have to stress about it, worry about it, fret. Just, just focus on me and I will take care of you. Well, scroll to the next page. That would be home furnishings. Babylon's answer to Wayfair, I think, is what this might be. Every kind of citron wood, and every article of ivory, and every article made from very costly wood, and bronze, and iron, and marble. Now, you can take from this list, and you can make some really fine countertops, cabinets, and shelves, and tables, and chairs. You know what else you can make? Something that is remarkably prevalent, a big seller during the tribulation. Idols. Idols. These are the things of idolatry. Remember back in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. It is remarkable to think that while the world is going through it in the tribulation, people still are idolatrous. In fact, they're even more so how far the rebellion has come. And 1 John 5.21, that's why John said 2,000 years ago, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Anything that you would worship that would be between you and God. See, Jesus came to rip the veil apart to make the entrance wide open so we could come directly to God the Father. So we could have relationship with God and access to God. Idol worship in all of its forms is what gets between me and the Father. So we've got jewelry and fine clothing and home furnishings, and, and then we come to verse 13, precious perfumes and cosmetics. I mean, it's just like a, a department store of old. But again, we're online doing this. So cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense. You can get all these things. They're all part of the commerce of Babylon. Get a whiff of this. The global fragrance market for 2018 topped $72.7 billion. Perfume. Fragrances to try and make our stinky bodies smell a little better. (laughs) $72.7 And you might ask, why do people spend such huge sums of money on expensive perfumes? It's more than just wanting to smell nice. Because what perfume does, what fragrance does, is it can change our emotional state. It truly can. It has such a powerful um, effect on us. It stimulates the olfactory nerve as well as areas of our brain that control emotions and memories. So there there are certain smells that have a a good memory. I, I think I've shared maybe years ago, but my grandmother used White Shoulders perfume. So all my life, she used white shoulders. I know that because I saw it on her counter when we went to visit her in Texas. And then when she ultimately moved out to California and lived up the road from us. And I would go to grandma's house and the whole house had that white shoulders smell to it. And to this day, if I smell white shoulders, I'd turn around looking for my grandma. I immediately think of her because that's so embedded in my memory. And there are certain smells and odors, and it doesn't. You know why Starbucks made such a killing on pumpkin spice lattes? Because that odor was the scent of the fall, and that, that time of year, and the harvest time, and, and there's something to the memories of, of, you know, time in the fall with family, and children back in school, so they're no longer at home all through the summer, and all those good things. <laughs> you know, it, so smells do that to us. No wonder in this time of tribulation, It makes sense. (laughs) Makes sense. With all seriousness, people wanting to forget what's falling all around them. Wanting to ignore the wrath. Wanting to remember the good old days before the wrath of God was coming down on us. But you know what? Again, compare this with God's economy. There is a fragrance in God's economy. Unparalleled. A redemptive aroma, if you will. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those whom are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're the aroma. You know, the prayers of the saints mixed with the incense on the altar rising up before God as a pleasing aroma smells good to God. That's a beautiful fragrance to the Lord. But it's a fragrance, Paul says, that is smelled among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one... The one perishing, it is an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. The aroma of Christ on you, on me, that gets on a believer, smells so good to another believer. It's a fragrance of life. And to someone who rejects Jesus, it smells like death. And this is a fragrance in God's economy. Paul says, who is adequate for these things? And I'll tell you who's adequate for these things. This is the fragrance of sacrifice. See, all these other fragrances and what will be sold even through the tribulation and all the sweet scents and aromas and perfumes that mankind develops, man, these are self fulfilling these are for the self but the fragrance of God is a fragrance of sacrifice our adequacy to smell like Christ comes from Christ who paid the highest price his own sacrifice enables us like him to be sacrificial his sacrifice gets on us it yields a sweet aroma of life to some and of course the foul stench of death to others So we can buy the fragrance of the world or the aroma of Christ. How do I get the aroma of Christ? You put faith in Jesus. You follow Jesus. Because what happens is, what would happen to me? See, I would go to Grandma's house. And I would play cards with Grandma. And we would have a wonderful time. She always had Hershey's Kisses kisses in a little bowl. So I would eat the entire bowl full before I left. (laughs) And I would come home invariably smelling like white shoulders. Now, I would never apply that to myself. That would be weird. Keep it on my counter. Is that white shoulders I smell? No, no, it's not. But I would smell like her because I was with her. The aroma of Christ gets on you. The aroma of His sacrifice begins to affect your memories. It begins to affect your emotions and the way you think until you begin to behave in the same way, in a self-sacrificial way, putting other people before you the way Jesus did. That's the fragrance of God. As opposed to the fragrance of the world which gives false remembrance of things that are passing away. So we've got jewelry and fine clothing and furnishings and precious scents and perfumes. And then we come to the gourmet wines and foods. Verse 13 continues. Wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep. If we were in the mall, we'd say that was the food court. This is now online because, you know, we're trying to keep up with the times. But note this, amazing. This is in the tribulation. During the famine that followed the rise of Antichrist, do you recall this? We read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, but, but, do not damage the oil and the wine. Why? Why? Because, in the days, even in the days of tribulation, if you can afford it, you can get it. While the world is suffering famine, while people are starving to death, and it's all falling apart around us, those who have the wealth can still get the gourmet food and the best wine. Even as Babylon is beginning to burn. Now I had to look this one up. Do you know what the most expensive single bottle of wine in the world is? Listen to this. It's not the 1947 uh, Chateau Cheval Blanc. That's three hundred four thousand three hundred seventy-five dollars. One bottle of wine. Then there's the 1945 Jeroboam of Chateau Mouton Rothschild. Three hundred ten thousand seven hundred dollars. One bottle of wine. A single glass would be $8,500. Wow. Really?
1: <laughs>
0: really? Man. Yeah, yeah. Give me fruit juice. <laughs> Here's the number one most expensive bottle of wine in the world today. It is a 1992 Screaming Evil Eagle Cabernet. <laughs> I thought that's really funny. Because you've got your Jeroboam, at home Oh, Oh, What's number one? The Screaming Eagle! $500,000 for that bottle. And Paul said, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. It dissipates. It's empty. There's nothing to it. No, instead be filled with the Spirit. See, wine, wine will dull and numb... And and will you know kill dendrites in the brain and have this kind of sleepy effect? The spirit be filled with the spirit. Why the spirit will wake you up. The spirit will fill you with joy. The spirit is lasting. The spirit is encouraging. The spirit is sober. The spirit gives clarity. The spirit brings wisdom. And he's free. <laughs> and he's free. Which. Larry, that's in my notes right here and he's free. <laughs> Great minds. God gives his spirit freely to those who ask. That's all you do. And I have your spirit, Lord. Luke 11:13 If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the holy spirit to those who ask? I want the Spirit in my life. Ask Him. It really is that simple. But it's not only spirits versus the Spirit. The fixings here of foods of all kinds. I'm going I'm to suggest to you that the foods here indicate not staple food, but gourmet food. So like extra virgin olive oil. Which is always funny to me because I'm not sure how much more virgin you can get. I mean, once you're virgin, you're virgin, right? This is extra virgin olive oil. <laughs> which, by the way, you can buy the most expensive oil, uh, olive oil bottle for $1,400 if you'd like to do that. And then it's talking about these, these uh, I, I think it'd be like almond, coconut, oat, and gluten free wheat flour. You know? Non GMO, grass fed, antibiotic free Kobe beef. Succulent, milk-fed lamb from the Pyrenees. I mean, this, this is the kind of food we're talking about. Not staple foods, but gourmet food. And again, God's store offers so much better... Then the best that you can buy in the world. Isaiah 55.10 As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The best you can buy. You can't even buy. It's given freely by the Lord. It's the bread of His Word. It's the feeding of the words of God. Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. What I'm saying to you is as we walk down this list, every single thing you see here is a counterfeit to what is better that comes from God. Everything in the list that we can buy, anything we can put our money into, is only secondary or counterfeit to what really comes through the Lord, to what God gives and makes a life worth living. Verse 13 continues And cargoes of horses and chariots. So we've just come to the luxury automobiles. (laughs) Chariots and horses. How do you get around? how you get from here to there? Now, growing up in Southern California, and especially the last few years that I spent there in the nineties, wow! It is a race for the best car, and the most recent and the newest, the luxury vehicles that that are all over the California freeways. And I guess if you have to sit in traffic that long, you want as good a vehicle as you can get. I don't know, but it's just amazing the competition to the finest cars. And the sharpest vehicles, and I remember puttering along in my little Toyota S5, 1974 Toyota S5, we called it the maggot. (laughs) And you know what? It got us from here to there. From here to there, that's what what a car does. It just transports you. And by the way, can I suggest to you the best mode of transportation? See, Jesus said in John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Let's walk with the Spirit. Let's let the Spirit transport us to where we need to be. Do we even realize... How deeply God values human life that He would offer His Spirit to come and abide in us do you realize how precious that makes you before the Lord that He would say to you this morning if you will ask I will give you my Spirit See, we don't even do that. We take time to get to know someone. We make sure we can trust someone. We enter into a relationship carefully with someone and then get to the point where we can start to give of ourselves to that person. And God says to you this morning, listen, I want you to know me and I want to know you. Let my spirit enter I'll enter you today. I will give you all of myself. Which in turn makes you precious to the Lord. By final contrast, we come to the last department of this Babylonian bazaar. And you'll find this department on the dark web. And slaves and human lives. So the last thing here being sold is humanity. This is human trafficking. And literally what it says, where you read slaves and human lives, the direct translation would be bodies and human souls. Bodies and human souls being sold in the Babylonian market. Proverbs 6.32 says, "...the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it." In the King James translation, literally it's, "...he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul." Because what we do in the flesh impacts the soul. And the flesh would eat the soul alive. And fleshly sin causes death to the soul. And what we see happening here in Babylon, and in commercial Babylon, is the complete devaluation of human life. And it's devaluation of life for a prophet. So funny, yesterday, yesterday was uh, Anna Marie's 21st birthday. And we were celebrating that and and Honor Marie and I actually got to go out to dinner, just the two of us last night. We were sitting there talking and Aunt Marie said, Dad, sure this is one of her things that just bugs her. I don't understand evolution. Now and we've had this conversation before, but she just brought it up again. I don't understand evolution. She said, I did not come from a monkey. <laughs> she said, My skin isn't even hairy like yours, Dad. And I'm like, hey, wait. <laughs> But, but she said, you know what I believe in? What I think I'm seeing in the world? 21 years old. She says, I'm seeing devolution. Devolution. People want to be like monkeys. People are going the other direction. And I went, daughter, you got it. That's exactly what we're seeing. A devolving of humanity. Humanity. A devolving even of the value of life where human trafficking is a huge billion dollar industry in our world today. By the way, can I just insert this, that the problem with pornography, the deeper problem with pornography, and if you struggle with it, please listen to me on this, the deeper problem with pornography is not simply that it's affecting you and messing with your thought life and that you're looking at images you shouldn't be looking at. The problem with it is is that it's human trafficking. You're looking at images of people who are being taken advantage of, who are being used. And that's what pornography is engaging in. I mean, the, the depravity of it is, is huge. And this, this market of the pornographic market, but the human trafficking market and what's going on behind the scenes here, it, it, it's, it's horrific. And by the way, this is commercial Babylon. Verses 12 and 13 describe the commerce that is taking place in the capital city of the world at the time. And what is it that all these things have in common? I've already hinted to you. These are not things required for daily existence. None of these are required for daily existence. They are all luxuries. And Charles Reary says the depth of their sin is covered with the veneer of luxurious living. And all this goes on in the midst of the terrible judgments of the tribulation. And in verse 14 we're told the fruit that you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. And when Babylon 5th Avenue collapses and the world economy crashes, the smoke of her burning rises up and mixed with that smoke is what I would call the lament of the merchants. And you can read that. It goes on down verses 15 through 19. It's just the lament of the merchants. Those who are involved in the trade and the commerce are weeping and mourning and crying out, whoa, whoa, because of the fall and the crash of all this commerce. And in the cacophony of all this, I can hear gently, lovingly, peacefully the words of Jesus wafting up from a hillside on the Galilee. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, "...do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven." where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that is an absolute spiritual fact. What you invest in is where your heart goes. What you spend money on is where your heart goes. What's valuable to you, materially speaking, is what your heart desires. Jesus says, let your treasure be a heavenly treasure. Let your heart be heavenward. Be spiritually minded. And how many followers of Jesus Christ have heard this? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. We hear it. We nod to it. We sing a praise song and we go home and store up. Turn over to Luke chapter 12 just for a moment. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is telling a parable. And by way of application, I want to share this with you this morning. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. While you're turning there, by way of introduction to it, someone in the crowd said to Him, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Someone's got a money issue. They're coming to Jesus for financial advice we got a problem. We have a family member who's passed away, and there's money here, and you need to tell my brother to make it right. Because he's not being fair. Jesus said to him, verse 14, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? What are you asking me for? And then He said to him, Beware. And be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You can be the wealthy, you can be the Warren Buffett of the world, and it doesn't make your life right with God. He told them a parable, verse 16, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? (laughs) This is funny because he clearly is going mental because he's talking to himself. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now... Who will own what you have prepared? Jesus says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Would you this morning consider yourself rich toward God? Just think about how you handle your own finances. Are you rich toward God? I can't afford to be rich toward God. Okay, allow me to be more crass. How much of your income is spent for the sake of the coming kingdom? Could you say 10%? I keep 90% for myself, but I'm giving 10% to God. Could you say 5%? 1%? None does percent it, Does it really matter? Does, does, does giving really matter? When Belshazzar parted and parted and drank on the night of Babylon's fall. You may recall in the story, he was drinking from the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Jerusalem temple. Bring those vessels. So the, the goblets and the plates and the bowls and things. They were pouring the wine into that and they're drinking it, and they're just making fun of the of the Jews and of the Jerusalem temple. But those listen, those things that they were drinking from. These were items that had been consecrated for holy use. They had been anointed for temple use. These were only to be used in the worship of the holy God. And I really wonder if what would happen if we viewed the things that we own as consecrated vessels for God. As vessels for holy use the things in our homes, the cars that we drive, the, the homes that we own, the, the clothes that we wear, the lives that we live, what would happen if we said, my income is consecrated to God. What would that do for the kingdom? And you all know this, it's rightfully his in the first place. And when we talk about tithing and the idea of giving 10% and it's already his, the 100% that you have that He says, I want you to give me 10% so that you remember I'm the one who gave you the other 90. The, in fact, I'm the one who gave you the entire 100. Do we recognize that's His? And He gives it to us. And then He says, and trust me with 10%. Why, Lord? Because, because it'll increase your faith. It'll help you believe in me more. Every time you give that, you'll know whether you feel like you can afford it or not. That God is the one who's providing everything you need. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. So he established a a way of doing it. He said, brilliant. God is so wise that even our monetary system, he says, I can tap that to increase their faith and their trust of me. Do we consider what we have consecrated to God? Are we rich to God? Now, Paul, by gracious inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, no one here is saying that we need to give till it hurts. And if it makes you grumpy, so be it. You need to give to the Lord and we're all going to be walking around here going, Yeah, I gave my tithe. I paid up.
1: I'm
0: not happy about it, but I did it. <laughs> Don't do it. Not with that attitude, man. Paul says this is a purpose of the heart. You know why he says that? Because our giving is a heart issue. That's where it comes, that's what it's about. It is not about budgets and it's not about incomes and salaries and paying the church staff and all the other things you might be thinking of. It's none of that. Giving is a heart issue. Where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus said. And so we've all got heart decisions to make about how we're going to handle God's provision, how much we're going to consecrate to God of what He's already given to us. But I want you to hear something else and listen closely to this. Equally inspired. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 that no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And Paul is talking to believers here. How do you know? Because these are people who will be saved yet as through fire. They will lose everything and on the way up... Their pants are going to be on fire, but they're going to be saved. Do you want that to be you? Or do you want to be the person who built with gold and silver of wisdom and the precious stones of a quiet heart? Do you want to be a godly person who builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ that which lasts? See, what is so tragic about the fall of commercial Babylon is as it burns to the ground, nothing is left. There's nothing there. There's nothing to show for all the commerce and all the investment and all the work and all the money that's spent for all the wealth and the riches. Nothing to be shown for it. But for our sake, are are we building on the foundation of Jesus with consecrated things that belong to God or are we building and storing things that will burn like Babylon burns? Revelation 17 What we talked about last week, and some of you already know this, the the crushing of religious Babylon in our study last Sunday that went on and on and on. I know, I was the one giving it. That was heavy for me, guys. That was an uphill slog. Last day, And I can't explain it other than say that this, what was going on in my heart last Sunday as we were dealing with false religion was I felt like I was climbing up hill dragging a huge Bible every step of the way. Then I got home and realized, well, of course, because we were talking about religion and religion's a heavy thing. In Revelation 18, the sacking of commercial Babylon, this isn't a heavy thing for me. This is disturbing. It's disturbing. I'll tell you why. See, I, I believe that this is literal Babylon. We'll talk about this more on Wednesday night. I believe that the falling of this city, this is literal rebuilt Babylon there, about 50 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq, literal Babylon. And I believe that's going to be the centerpiece of Antichrist's capital and rule over the earth during the tribulation. And it will be a center of wealth and commerce and all. I believe it is literal Babylon. But I see something else, at least by way of example here, that I I can't ignore. This description, back in 18, the description of the fine jewelry and prime wardrobes and home furnishings, precious perfumes, gourmet food, luxury transportation, and human trafficking, it sounds alarmingly and ominously American. It sounds like our nation. Some scholars would even suggest that commercial Babylon is in reality what is often referred to as the financial capital of the world, New York City. Some go so far as to suggest that this is New York City that is falling, that it's New York City that is burning, that it's New York City that is Antichrist's capital of commerce, and it's just referred to as Babylon. And we're going to look at some compelling prophecies on Wednesday night that at least explain how you could come to that conclusion. We live in the richest nation in the history of the world. And the one struggling most financially among us here this morning is wealthier than 98% of the world's population. We are so used to wealth and luxury in our world. We are so used to it, we don't even know how well off we are. Well, great. Should I go home and sell my car and my house and my stuff and go live under the bridge?
1: <laughs>
0: what are you asking me to do here? I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just presenting the information. And by the way, don't confuse poverty with holiness. See, that's utterly foolish. Foolish. To say that, well, to be impoverished, to have nothing, and to struggle day to day, that's, that's a holy person. I remember coming back from, I was sharing this with a friend this, this week, that coming back from Honduras, uh, one of the things like a second trip, I had taken a bunch of teens to Honduras on a mission trip, and we spent two weeks there. And uh, coming home, all the Honduran people, we, we were out literally in the jungles, and we were going village to village, and the poverty was just unbelievable, unbelievable poverty. And we came home, and I remember one of the girls in the youth group standing up and saying, I want to go back to Honduras because those are the most spiritual people I have ever known in my life. And I remember sitting there going, they're all sleeping together. The men get drunk and don't work. These are, these are some of the most sensible people I've ever seen in my life. The people that, that we interacted with and worked with. The reality is the people of Honduras were every bit as sinful as the people of America. So it's not poverty that that, that makes for holiness. It's what you do with what you have. However much or however little, from the widow's might to the mightiest income, what will we do with what we've been given? That's the issue. Now if the Lord puts it on your heart to sell everything and go on a foreign mission field, you better do it if He's telling you to do that. If He's telling you that your your paltry giving or your lack of any kind of giving whatsoever to anything kingdom related should be convicting, let it be convicting. Yeah, but what if I start giving and then I can't meet my monthly... All these things will be added to you, Jesus said. One more thing I want to read this to you. I'll end with this. But 1 Timothy... Chapter 6, verse 17. Paul wrote to young Pastor Tim and he said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world. And by the way, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, to be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed again it is not about how much we have it's what we do with what we have and as we see commercial Babylon going down and it will go down and the entire global market will crash and never recover Be rich to God. Be rich to God. I mean, that sums up everything that I'm seeing here. Be rich to God. Be generous. Be ready to share. Consecrate whatever possessions we may have for His purposes. Let's put our money where our faith is. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for you, for your sake, He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. Would you pray with me? Lord, the whole money thing. It's, it's remarkable, but it's true that it's one of the biggest struggles that we have as people of faith. Trusting You with our financial decisions. Our tendency, our desire to want to store up, to prepare for a rainy day, to have excess in reserve, to be, to be ready. And yes, Lord, you've called us to good stewardship. But I suspect, well, Lord, I'll just pray this about myself. I often use the word stewardship instead of stingy. And I I begin to recognize, Lord, that to be a good steward of the things of God is to invest the things of God in the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that You will give us a heart for this. Your servant Paul wrote, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. And I pray that You would convict our hearts of Your purpose for us. And may we, Father, may every person in here make decisions financially not based on the words of Pastor Rick, but based on the words of Scripture. May we all recognize the conviction of our hearts where money is concerned and do with your provision as you desire. May we find the joy of generosity. May we see the result of truly trusting you. And may we not be like commercial Babylon, storing up for a great destruction. May we instead, Lord, recognize the valuable things of Jesus. All the contrast we talked about this morning between the world's system of commerce and finance and what is of Jesus, what's truly valuable and precious. Father, my prayer is that we would not be weighed and found wanting. But Lord, our weight would be the presence of Your glory and Your Spirit in us and among us. Lord, we give You this time and we pray, Holy Spirit, work on our hearts a little more. Convict us of what we need to be convicted of. Comfort where we need comfort. Encourage where we need to be encouraged. But Lord, so let us walk out of here without truly considering the generosity of Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two ways you can live you can live for self, or you can live for Christ. And one of the things that makes it most obvious in the choice that we're making is how we handle our finances. So my challenge, my encouragement to you, which I've had to be dealing with all week personally, is how we're using what we've been given for the sake of Jesus. The more we use it for Him, the more joyful, the more free, the less stress. Because it's about Him. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, His is the best way to live. And we invite you this morning, while we sing this song, you can come to any of the four tables and pray. And ask Jesus to enter your heart today. Ask Him for His Spirit. He will give His Spirit freely, immediately. And if you know Jesus, maybe you've been struggling financially. And and you're just not sure of His provision. You want to come pray? Let's pray about that. Maybe you've been so blessed financially you don't know what to do with it. Well, let's pray about that. Put that into the hands of the Lord and let let Him show you what He would have you do. But let's sing to Him and come to him. Would you stand with me and come if you have any need?